cannot win against someone you cannot say no to. Period. And we can't say no to Putin because we sold our soul for his oil and gas. And we did that to elevate our moral stature in relationship to saving the planet. And so here we are, yeah. facing a very dire winter, hoisted on the petard of our own foolishness and moral presumption. We're saving the planet. We'll see. I don't think so. It doesn't look like it to me. And this is, this is the most catastrophic issue here. Assuming that we're facing an environmental crisis of planetary proportions, which is not something I buy, by the way, assuming we are, well, then I would imagine that you would put in place measures that would ameliorate that problem instead of exacerbating it. But all the measures you're putting in place are actually making the environmental problem worse. So how is that even vaguely acceptable? And I look at that and I think, oh, I see. It's just like George Orwell said about middle-class socialists 50 years ago. It's not that you love the planet. It's that you hate humanity. So, well, have at her, boys and girls, and we'll see what happens this winter. And it's very terrifying to me, I especially here, you know, because your energy prices have gone way out of control, and that's going to hurt a lot of poor people, mm. and, and certainly around the world as well. The World Bank already estimated that we've put 350 million people into what they call a food insecurity, 350 million. That's three times as many as the communists managed to kill. Maybe we can manage that in a winter. But the planet has too many people on it anyway, so, you know, that's just poor people. Welcome to the Baseline Podcast. My name is Ben Beatty. A long opener for this episode, but the bleak picture painted by Jordan Peterson is something we all desperately hope won't come to pass. Unfortunately, in this recent interview with Piers Morgan, there isn't much good news pushing back on this grim narrative. The theme for today's episode is interference, both from bureaucrats in markets and from activist shareholders in the private sector. AGL is a good example of the latter, and we'll look overseas for precursors to what's happening in our local energy systems, particularly in Europe, and the head of the UN calling for increasing taxes on fossil fuels. And we'll consider the potential for the largest interference in our energy systems, nationalisation. We're going to start by quoting excerpts from a Twitter thread by energy analyst and commentator Doomberg. No need to introduce this one further, it explains itself. As I'm reading it out, you might consider parallels to Australian policies. Here we go. Many politicians in the US want to close existing nuclear power plants, oppose the development of reliable fossil fuels at virtually every opportunity, attack existing energy infrastructure choke points, and constrain capital for future development. This behaviour seems virtually indistinguishable from what the US would be doing if an adversarial foreign power were in charge of its affairs. And much of it is driven by privately funded and egregiously extremist environmental groups. Consider one outfit called Earth Justice, which describes itself as the premier non-profit public interest environmental law organisation. They boast of deploying 170 lawyers against 630 active legal proceedings. These organisations steadfastly oppose the development of all traditional energy projects, purposely embroil companies working to grow our economy in an endless loop of nuisance lawsuits, and falsely claim they're doing so in the name of the environment. Now I'm going to stop here to list several Australian parallels. Adani, Beedaloo, Santos's offshore gas, Narrabri, Lock the Gate, Surratt, Greens stopping gas development in Victoria, a New South Wales judge stopping coal mine expansion because of its future impact on children. Doomberg continues. It is literally impossible to decarbonise much of our economy 
without a massive renaissance in nuclear power, making the members of Earth Justice and similar organisations either anti-human, deniers of physics, or some combination of both. As the Russian invasion of Ukraine has proven across multiple dimensions, the ability to produce primary energy is the ultimate expression of geopolitical power. Europe's economy is on its knees from having forgotten this critical axiom, and the US risks following suit. Earlier this week, Representative Rashida Tlaib embarrassed herself before the public when she demanded to know whether major US banks would stop funding all fossil fuel projects. Meanwhile, a billionaire with extensive business ties to China announced his opposition to all planned petrochemical development projects in the US. Mike Bloomberg's Beyond Petrochemicals initiative aims to severely undercut US manufacturing. While Bloomberg is doing his best to squeeze US industry, China and India are building dozens of new coal-fired power plants, swamping any potential carbon savings Bloomberg could ever dream of. How are the policies championed by the likes of Earth Justice, Tlaib and Bloomberg distinguishable from what Putin and Xi would prefer the US to do? The simple and disturbing answer is they aren't. End quote. Now back to me. Nobody can doubt the truth of that. Here's the exchange mentioned by Doomberg. US Congresswoman Rashid Tlaib asking an insane question and getting a sane response from the CEO of JP Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon. Dimon, along with other bankers, was being questioned by the House Financial Service Committee. You have all committed, as you all know, uh, to transition the emissions from lending and investment activities to align with pathways to net zero in 2050. Do you know uh, what the International Energy Energy um, Agency has said is required to meet our global 2050 net targets of limiting global temperature rise to 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit or 1.5 degrees Celsius. So no new fossil fuel production starting today. That's So that's like zero. So I would like to ask all of you and go down the list because again, you all have agreed to doing this. Please answer with a simple yes or no. Does your bank have a policy against funding new oil and gas products? Mr. Diamond. Absolutely not, and that would be the road to hell for America. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Sir, you know what? Everybody that got relief from student loans has a bank account with your bank should probably take out their account and close their account. The fact that you're not even there to help relieve many of the folks that are in debt, extreme debt, because of student loan debt, and you're out there criticizing it. While this U.S. situation is politics getting involved, Australia is witnessing its own version of stakeholder activism. Mike Cannon-Brooks has bought around 11% of AGL, Australia's oldest energy company, apparently in a deliberate strategy to force the early closure of its coal-fired power stations. That is Liddell, a 2,000 megawatts in New South Wales, already under planned closure arrangements, the adjacent Bayswater, 2,640 megawatts, and Loyang A, with 2,210 megawatts in Victoria's Latrobe Valley. MCB, or Double Bay Jesus, as is referred to in some newspaper columns, hasn't explained how the revenue from the coal generators he wants to close, around $7 billion per year, will be replaced, and how that will impact the $860 million profit AGL made in, 2020, uh, in 2021-22. Here's MCB on the Real Economy podcast not explaining it. When did you start thinking about AGL as a target? And I'm just wondering if you can sort of describe what your partners Brookfield um, have described as like a meeting of the minds about this target look we when the demerger was announced right it, it doesn't uh, i'm talking to the converted here but it, it doesn't make sort of logical or economic sense in fact it's it's i think going to be a retrograde sort of backward step right 
And uh, so we started looking at it uh, way back then. And, you know, looking around, and this is obviously not the sort of exercise that we've participated in before, uh, but talk to folk who are knowledgeable about those exercises and thought maybe there's a chance. So did a little bit more work and put a small team on it. And in doing so, um, got more convicted that there's both an economic path and uh, an alternate path that um, with the right capital and experience uh, and talent and ambition that I think uh, uh, we can push through and we can make happen. And that started forming up. And then we, uh, again, talked to a few other folk. We actually found a number of different groups who were uh, looking at this as an idea. And uh, Brookfield were a really good match for us in that they had their own models of how it would work with the different set of experiences. And so sort of combining them and our various strengths, um, I think has led to the, you know, the combined strength is it, it's a, one of those, um, you know, one plus one equals three, I guess. We get slightly more from the CEO of MCB's Grok Ventures, the company that bought 11.3% of AGL to become the largest shareholder. From the Australian Financial Review. Mr. Kwong Law said energy companies of the future would have a different business model from their typical current structure of having large generating plants that sent out one-way power to customers and which are being hammered as those customers increasingly put solar panels on their roofs, making daytime generation unprofitable. The future energy business is one that is a much more circular company than a one-way street company. You need to think about your consumers not just as consumers, but also producers. And how do they on the grid soak up energy and also deliver energy back to the grid, he said. Grokka suggested that AGL could offer financing products that help households fund the investment needed to convert their homes to 100% renewable electricity. One of Grok's many energy-related investments includes a stake in Bright, which provides loans for households wanting to install solar panels and batteries or to buy an electric vehicle. Mr Kwong Law said the trend for households to move to solar and electrification would only continue as customers made rational decisions about their energy usage and costs. Okay, so that's the story a piece out of the AFR. Now, does does Mike Cannon-Brooks really think Australians care this much about how their electricity gets to their house? How many people want batteries? How many consumers can even have batteries? None of this plan sounds as if it's going to keep AGL in the money. And judging by AGL's slumping share price, regular non-activist shareholders seem to agree. In a similar vein, we have Origin choosing not to develop the Beedaloo Gas Project in the Northern Territory, but not guilty enough to avoid keeping a portion of the royalties uh, when the next company brings the gas to market. This is a good point to define ESG, and conveniently for me, Vivek Ramaswamy did this perfectly last week during an interview with Dave Rubin. ESG movement, people hear this acronym, I mean, what is it? Okay, so, so it stands for Environmental, Social and Governance Factors, and, and it basically is a close cousin of a broader movement called Stakeholder Capitalism, which refers to the idea that businesses should not just sell products and services for profit but they should also advance other societal agendas and other social interests. Okay, that's the philosophy. Agree or not, that's what it says. Now, what that's become is a vehicle for government actors to effectuate through the private sector what they could not effectuate through the front door of policymaking. So, so one example let's take is, is the climate agenda, the Green New Deal, whatever you may want to call it. The Green New Deal did not muster political support to be passed through Congress. Well, what the ESG movement offered was a vehicle to lean on many companies to sign what you call a climate pledge instead. 
get every company to voluntarily, voluntarily, by the way, I use that in air quotes <laughs> yeah. because it's with yeah. the invisible fist of government behind it, but to voluntarily adopt net zero standards and pledges by 2050, unilateral pledges to support the Paris Climate Accords and abide by its demands. MCB's antics are part of a wider trend that Ramaswamy labelled stakeholder capitalism. The climate renewables lobby want us to believe that mum and dad shareholders are buying shares and attending annual general meetings in order to force cleaner, greener actions from companies. The climate renewables lobby also want us to believe that this is entirely sensible, leading to improved outcomes for both the share price and the environment. Here's Ramaswamy again, describing how big investors engage in activism. You know, actors like BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, you asked who they are, they're the world's largest asset manager managing over $10 trillion of everyday citizens' money. What they do is they manage that money by investing in American companies, but then to show up in the boardrooms of those companies and say that, you know what, we're not going to promote you, or we're not going to pay you, or we're going to vote your directors off unless you adopt these environmental and social agendas that we demand. But they're using the money of everyday citizens to do it. Most of those everyday citizens actually disagree with that agenda. So that's the top-down problem. It's a, you know, it's a big breach of fiduciary duty, using $10 trillion of someone else's money to advance political agendas that the everyday citizen, the owner of capital, disagrees with. That's the top-down problem. So the way I talk about this is no longer as shareholders, but as the owners of the company, the actual end owner of capital, the everyday citizen whose money is being invested mediated financial system that then goes into a pension fund, that then asks an investment consultant where to invest, that then invests in a fund managed by BlackRock, that then invests in a company. It's such an intermediated system that the actual owner of capital has no idea that that state pension fund and its board member and its investment staff and BlackRock were betraying their interests by representing viewpoints in corporate America's boardrooms, in the boardrooms of companies like Chevron, the one I wrote to earlier this week in ways that the owner of capital had no idea was actually happening. I'm going to divert slightly here, uh, and we'll see if I can bring it back. Okay. Brookfield is a multinational investment firm with $750 billion US in assets headed by a fellow called Mark Carney. Carney, previously from the Bank of England, and is a committed climate activist, and he currently holds the title of UN Special Envoy on Climate Action and Finance. Carney also fronts a group called GFANS, Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero that boasts most of the planet's big banks as members. If you think that sounds a bit like a cartel, you're not alone. Attorney generals from 19 US states have written to BlackRock CEO Larry Fink asking why finance companies colluding to prevent fossil fuel companies getting finance is not cartel-like behaviour, Bloomberg News reports. Banks, including JP Morgan Chase & Co and Morgan Stanley, may leave the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero Mark Carney's coalition to fight climate change because they fear the organization's strict requirements for decarbonisation may make them legally vulnerable. Back to me. Well, that would be vulnerability to laws governing fiduciary duty and antitrust. And the link to Australian consumers and this podcast is that Carney's Brookfield is a partner in the Cannon Brooks activism against Australia's largest generator and retailer, AGL, one of Australia's largest investors in wind and solar. Is that cartel-like behaviour? I don't know. Maybe the ACCC will tell us one day. Okay. A short interlude here to discuss the UN and the comments from the head of the UN, Antonio Guterres. The fossil fuel industry is feasting on hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies and windfall profits while households' budgets shrink and our planet burns. Excellencies, let's tell it like it is. Our world is addicted to fossil fuels. 
and it's time for an intervention. We need to hold fossil fuel companies and their enablers to account. And that includes the banks, private equity, asset managers, and other financial institutions that continue to invest and underwrite carbon pollution. It includes the massive public relations machine raking in billions to shield the fossil fuel industry from scrutiny. Just as they did for the tobacco industry decades before, lobbyists and spin doctors have spewed harmful misinformation. Fossil fuel interests need to spend less time averting a PR disaster and more time averting a planetary one. Of course, fossil fuels cannot be shut down overnight. A just transition means leaving no person or country behind. But it's high time to put fossil fuel producers, investors and enablers on notice. Polluters must pay. And today I'm calling on all developed economies to tax the windfall profits of fossil fuel companies. Those funds should be redirected in two ways. To countries suffering loss and damage caused by the climate crisis, and to people struggling with rising food and energy prices. Well, I'm not sure the fossil fuel industries are feasting on subsidies. I think that might be the uh, renewables lobby. Anyway, Queensland government's recent royalty tax hike on coal miners fits right in. This leads me to wonder, what has the UN done for us lately? Why does the UN want energy costs to increase and hurt the poorest people the most? In a sane world, the UN would be striving for countries to reduce energy costs, which can only be achieved by increasing energy supply. Guterres said exactly this about food supply. His Twitter post reads, Since the signing of the Black Sea Grain Initiative, 4.3 million metric tonnes of food have been moved, bound for 29 countries. Food prices have dropped sharply, but are still almost 8% higher than last year. Shipments must increase so commodity markets can further stabilise. Imagine that. Increasing supply lowers the cost. So why is the UN pursuing reduced energy supply? Why are they trying to reduce it? Does the UN actually want to introduce a one-world government like some of the conspiracy theorists believe? And, you know, maybe it's not such a conspiracy theory when they say it out loud. Climate lockdowns and carbon budgets don't seem like a very far stretch, especially in the context of the recent COVID experiences. This obsession with increasing the cost of energy is anti-human and degrowth. The same guy goes on about fertilizer. If the fertilizer market is not stabilized, next year the world may run out of food, he says. A pause here to say that rich countries won't run out of food, will continue to buy food, the poor countries will run out of food. Guterres continues, It is essential that all countries remove every remaining obstacle to the export of Russian fertilisers. Okay, so Russian fertiliser okay too? Good to hear. We need to get them to farmers at a reasonable cost and onto the fields as soon as possible. What a joke the UN is. How are we doing this? We are diversifying away from the Russian supply towards other suppliers that are democratic, friends, and trustworthy. First hand, of course, our friends in the United States. I closed an agreement with President Biden on LNG imports that really, really helped us and saved us in these difficult times. It's very successful. The second point that we are doing besides diversifying away is saving energy. The energy that is not being used is good energy. We save it to the storage for the coming winter. Of course, this comes at a price. So let me tell you that we all feel that the global energy market is very tight. The whole Russian supply is missing. So we are demanding energy on the global market. Therefore, the global market is really tight. 
energy prices are skyrocketing, as you observe in Europe. This is a heavy burden on people's and businesses' shoulders. We're taxing now the windfall profits of electricity-producing companies to have a targeted support for vulnerable households and vulnerable businesses. EU President Ursula von der Leyen at a American university uh, talking about energy security and the EU's dependence on a single foreign power, in this case Russia and gas. But note the unspoken truth here that in attempting to achieve net zero, they're just transferring that dependency to China. China recently boasted that they can make hydrogen electrolyzers three times cheaper than they can be made in the West. She's uh, sticking close to the script there with the uh, windfall profit taxes on the energy companies. With energy independence and energy freedom comes greater power to defend the global rules. This is the immediate response. But there's, of course, a mid-term and long-term response. Ultimately, the best way to get rid of fossil fuels is a massive investment in renewable energy. So how, how is all this affecting Australia? Well, in Queensland, we've had some recent tax hikes on our coal miners. Mark Greswell of Commodity Insights interviewed on ABC Radio discussing the consequences of the Queensland government's royalty hike on coal miners and the outlook for coal in general. But in 10, 15 years' time, you'll be producing a lot less coal and therefore making a lot less revenue than you could have been if you left the royalties in a, a level where they were more sustainable. And again, that's going to sound good to some people who feel like coal is a culprit for climate change, but why are you of the opinion that we actually need coal in the short to medium term as we transition? still accounts for nearly 40% of global energy coal does and we're seeing great demand for it right now because it's reliable, it's cheap, it's generally widely available and on the steel side it's vital for making steel which is used in construction and infrastructure globally so it's very difficult just to transition away overnight. The, the percentage of coal in the energy mix globally hasn't changed in the last 40 years despite all efforts and there's very fundamental reasons for that. And because it's relatively cheap in power generation, developing countries love to use it, just like we did in our own development here in Australia. And it helps their development because it provides cheap electricity and we're seeing that right across Asia. We actually think coal has a bright future because of that. The tax royalty hike is one example by the Queensland government of total compliance with the UN's goals, doing their bit to restrict energy, raise its price and hurt people. Recall Jordan Peterson's grim warning at the top of this episode, raising energy costs are degrowth anti-human policies. A lot of Queensland's coal is destined for India. The official Queensland-India trade and investment strategy states, Queensland exported 207 million tonnes of coal, for which India was the third largest market, accounting for 15% of total coal exported, comprising 17% of India's total imports. With increasing urbanisation and a growing middle class, India's demand for energy commodities will accelerate. India's metallurgical coal imports are expected to grow as domestic supplies fall. India's international thermal coal imports have decreased at 6% per annum over the last three years due to enhanced domestic production following the Indian government's plans to more than double thermal coal production to around 1 billion tonnes between 2014 and 2020. In 2018, the Indian government approved commercial non-captive thermal coal mining by private firms, which will increase supply in the market. You can see that India is taking its energy security seriously by ensuring it develops its own coal reserves so it is less dependent on adversarial foreign powers. Tax hikes seem adversarial to me. We will buy from Russia, we'll buy from wherever. 
Yeah. At the, a democratically elected government. If and you don't have a moral conflict with the Russians no, no, have, at have, all. No, no, it's just a question of no conflict. I have a moral duty to my consumer. Do you want? Do you, yeah. do I, as a democratically elected government, want uh, a situation where? The petrol bunk uh, runs dry. Look at what's happening in countries around but India. But they did invade a democratic country. Well, well, that, so did a lot. No, no, I, I'm not getting into that debate. Yeah. It's a question of energy. By the way, those who wanted to do that ideological punitive action, they're still buying. India's petroleum minister there. Well said, sir. Can we have you instead of Chris Bowen? <laughs> the creep of authoritarian policies is not restricted to the health space. I mean, we still have emergency health orders in place throughout Australia. But recently, uh, in during the June energy crisis, New South Wales treasurer slash energy dictator Matt Keane took on some extra powers in order to divert coal because apparently record high prices aren't enough to keep the lights on. While the extraordinary measures were temporary with a shelf life of 30 days, it seems to me like a test run for far greater and longer lasting government inventions down the track. When at the stroke of a pen a politician can nationalise infrastructure, you have to wonder when they'll either get a taste for it, when these extraordinary interventions will become the norm, and when they'll escalate to be no longer temporary, but perhaps ended at the minister's discretion. Here's a piece from the ABC. New South Wales Treasurer and Energy Minister Matt Keane says emergency powers to control the state's coal supplies are a precautionary measure to keep the lights on and the system going. Mr Keane said he asked the New South Wales Governor to grant him the temporary powers on Thursday night following advice from the Australian energy market operator. The special powers give the energy minister the authority to declare the supply and distribution of coal as an essential service. It means Mr Keane now has the authority to order coal producers to increase supply or facilitate the delivery of coal to electricity generators. The powers will be enforced for a period of 30 days unless revoked sooner. So think about that. Supply and distribution of coal is an essential service. Why would that be? Because you need to keep the electricity going. And yet here we are moving to a system full of wind and solar dependent generation. Matt Keane's manipulation of the electricity sector isn't limited to emergency powers over conveyor belts. You'd think politicians with a god complex would lean towards price caps on something as important as, as electricity. But Keane is desperate to force more wind and solar into the grid. So he has created a floor price for renewables. That's right, a floor price. This latest subsidy scheme is a key component of the Long-Term Energy Services Agreement, an electricity supply contract designed to mitigate against low wholesale prices, a scheme currently kicking off in New South Wales. From the Ashurst Lawyers website, LTESAs, that is the Long-Term Energy Services Agreement, are a central element of the New South Wales Electricity Infrastructure Roadmap and allow renewable generators to sell their energy at an agreed minimum price to a scheme financial vehicle set up by the New South Wales government. The idea is to de-risk renewable energy projects by providing investors with long-term revenue certainty and protection against low wholesale electricity prices. I kid you not, that's pretty clearly propping up wind and solar generators so they are not exposed to low wholesale prices. And who covers this risk? The network service providers. And who covers the network service providers? Consumers, through their bills. You and me. Well, not me, I don't live in New South Wales. Uh, and another one, a bit more detail, from Minter Ellison Lawyers. As the counterparty to a long-term energy services agreement, the statutory right of the scheme financial vehicle to recover its costs from distribution network service providers supports the bankability of the service agreement arrangements 
for the long-term energy services operator. While neither the New South Wales government, AEMO, nor the financial trustee, financial trustee is also an AEMO organisation, will provide financial guarantees or credit support for the, for the obligations under a service agreement, the scheme financial vehicle will have a statutory right to recover its actual costs by way of contributions from the DNSPs. The DNSP is a distribution network service provider. That's the ones that put the poles and wires and transformers through the suburbs and the cables under the streets. Such contributions from DNSPs will be subject to a cost determination process by the regulator. This right enhances the creditworthiness and bankability of LTESAs due to the creditworthiness of the network service providers. The network service providers are currently wholly or partially owned by government, are geographic monopolies, and benefit from credit support from electricity retailers. Due to these characteristics, it is likely that network service providers will be considered highly creditworthy for the purposes of the scheme, reflecting the New South Wales government's intention that the scheme financial vehicle will be viewed as a sovereign credit. So, how does all this fit into the electricity market? What is the effect on electricity prices for consumers? No one seems to care. The central claim from the renewable lobby is that wind and solar are the cheapest new generation. You hear it all the time. Here's some examples. Today, the cost of renewables is so low that it's undercutting the economics of other forms of generation. Well, that's right, Mr Keane, especially if you insulate it from low prices. Labor MP Josh Burns out of Victoria now and we'll begin our conversation there. Josh, good to see you. Thanks for coming, by the way. So Trudy just outlined a couple of numbers there. Uh, AGL customers facing price hikes in your state, 5.6%. New South Wales and Queensland, though, much higher, 17.5%, 18% respectively. People are going to feel the pinch there, aren't they? Absolutely. Good morning, Pete, and good morning to your viewers. It's clear that the cheapest form of electricity is renewable energy. Notice that none of these people who refer to wind and solar as cheap refer to the end-to-end -end cost of supplying electricity. The approved term for use is new generation costs. While wind and solar are relatively cheap to build compared to coal and nuclear, but you know, gas turbines are pretty cheap too. The claim that wind and solar can lower the cost of electricity supply is only partly true and only under certain conditions. Condition one, when the physics of electricity supply is supported by synchronous generation. So in a majority coal gas hydro grid like we have on Australia's east coast, wind and solar, which are connected through inverters instead of hundreds of tonnes of spinning copper, play a relatively minor role in the generation mix most of the time. Condition two. When there is sufficient backup generation capacity already installed so that when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing, the cost of backup is not assigned to wind and solar. By the way, the renewables lobby refers to this backup as firming, but they also refer to a gas turbine as flexible. How do you know when you are being told fibs when the climate renewable lobby gives you conflicting adjectives? Of course, the cost of backup is never included in the cost of wind and solar. Condition 3. When the generation required to fill in the gaps between periods of sun and wind is also low cost. For example, coal that is idling at minimum load or even paying to be online because that's cheaper than turning off and then turning back on. But if the generation that is called on to run when a cloud goes by is very expensive, for example, a gas turbine in South Australia, that is, as Borat says, not so much. Condition four, favourable weather. Now, I can't emphasise this point enough. It seems obvious because wind and solar generation requires the sun to be shining and the wind to be blowing. Everybody knows it. But these generators are small and inefficient and are so widely spread they contribute little most of the time. So, under these conditions... 
adequate amounts of something to support the physics electricity supply, something to fill in the gaps that intermittency causes in supply. When all of that is low cost, and when the weather says it's okay, that's when wind and solar can lower wholesale prices. But wholesale price only contributes about 30% to the bill of the average consumer. Electricity does not reach your house just because some developer got a, got a government grant to build a solar farm out near Whoop Whoop. Electricity is a modern miracle, a complicated feat of engineering, surprisingly fragile if not managed in intricate detail. Under the right conditions, wind and solar can act to reduce the cost of 30% of your electricity bill. But when conditions are not favourable, remember that wind has a capacity factor around 30%, large-scale solar around 20%, and rooftop PV around 12%, wind and solar act to increase wholesale prices all the other times. And this is because every other generator needs to recoup its running costs from a smaller market share. That's not all. We've only discussed wholesale price, the 30% of the bill that wind and solar can reduce. The remaining 70% of your bill covers the cost of delivering the electricity reliably to your home or business. This is the system cost. Wind and solar increase these costs all of the time when they're running and not running. Consider the poles and wires. Lots more of these connecting large-scale wind and solar projects to the grid. The costs of these don't ebb and flow with the wind. These added costs are constant, forever. The distribution transformer upgrades, metering and grid stability services being installed through the suburbs full of solar panels, these costs are permanent. And, and we're constantly told though, we're constantly told, no, no, renewables are the cheapest. <laughs> the cheapest form of power is apparently yes. solar and wind energy. But why can't anyone who says that point to one country? And as I say, this has been tried in a lot of nations now. We've been on this for about 20 years, oh, two yes. decades worth of experimentation. Why can't one, one of these advocates point to just one country where the installation of solar and wind has led to enormous uh, reductions in power prices, free energy for everybody? It doesn't happen. <laughs> the complete reverse happens. And we just hope that, I just hope that Australians wake up before we get too far down this European path, which uh, poverty lays at the end of it. Matt Canavan there on Sky News talking truth to and about power. In the short periods of time that wind and solar actually do work to lower the average wholesale price, they do this by offering the output at very low prices, negative and zero dollars per megawatt hour. Since the clearing price for the electricity market in each region is set by the highest cost generator dispatched in each five minute period, there are times when the resultant clearing price that includes wind and solar is set lower than it might otherwise be without wind and solar. But these times are rare and do not always cancel out periods of high prices. In order to view the market without the recent external distortions, you know, prior to the Russia-Ukraine effect on coal and gas prices, we had the COVID lockdowns, depressing demand, and the price of oil, gas, and coal globally. So in order to view the market without these external effects, we have to go back to 2019. AMO's quarterly energy dynamics report from Q4 2019 provides some insights into this price volatility, the extremes between negative wholesale price and very high prices. The report states... National electricity market spot prices averaged $72 a megawatt hour, which was 19% lower than Q4 2018, representing the lowest prices since Q4 2016. Although South Australia exhibited a significant level of spot price volatility with high prices uh, defined as above $300 a megawatt hour, with high prices increasing the average by $10 a megawatt hour, these were cancelled out by the impact of negative prices, which cut $8 a megawatt hour from the quarter's average. Well, mostly cancelled. The report continues. Wholesale prices in gas markets continued their downward trend, falling by an average of 26% compared to Q4 2018 and reaching their lowest level since the end of 2017. 
This was driven by lower priced offers coinciding with low international gas prices, decreased electricity prices, and increased Queensland gas production. There's that link again. Increased production and low prices. The report goes on to show that even in South Australia, renewables almost never set the wholesale price. According to the report, by far the biggest effect on setting South Australia's regional wholesale price at over 30% of the time each is coal, gas and hydro. And this makes perfect sense because to match supply to demand, the market operator has to request something to generate electricity. And you can't tell wind and solar how much electricity to generate, you just take what they give you and fill in the gaps with something reliable. As a result of the South Australian grid having a relatively large amount of wind and solar, the Australian Energy Market Operator has a dedicated section on its website called the uh, South Australian Advisory Functions to collect all the additional reporting and recommendations on this section of the grid. This, this stuff that is necessary to prevent widespread blackouts across the state. South Australia is a region often held up as the poster child for the climate renewables lobby because its grid has one of the highest percentages of wind and solar in the world. South Australia has nearly 8,000 megawatts of generation capacity made up of 3,000 megawatts of large-scale wind and solar 2,000 megawatts of rooftop solar, 3,000 megawatts of gas-fired turbines, and 700 megawatts of diesel fuel turbines thrown in as well. Plus, they have the 650-megawatt Haywood interconnector to neighbouring state Victoria's brown coal-fired power stations. And when you dig into the data, the electricity imports from Victoria are the equivalent of a 200-megawatt coal-fired power station running continuously on top of the gas and diesel required to keep the lights on. Some transition. Getting back into the market side of things... Large-scale wind and solar are not the primary reason for negative pricing. That dubious honour goes to rooftop solar. It has the lowest capacity factor of any technology. It is heavily subsidised, which makes it prolific. And it is uncontrolled. It cannot be turned down if necessary to make room for synchronous generators when they are needed to support the physics of electricity generation, which is often. Every grid has a minimum synchronous generation requirement and always will. Rooftop solar is the largest threat to the stable operation of the entire electricity grid and to the economic operation of the market. Solar power has generated a world first in South Australia. For the first time, the sun alone has provided 100% of our energy demand. It was only for just over an hour, but it's a milestone we'll see more often as solar uptake surges. More than a third of SA homes have rooftop panels and new ones are being installed every day. But ironically, all that extra energy could end up causing big problems, even blackouts. And it's forcing electricity operators to make some tough decisions, including adjusting feed-in tariffs and even switching off solar if they need to. ABC News there telling part of the truth. The electricity market determines the pricing and allocation of generation, considering supply, demand and constraints, and it provides a price signal for investment, you know, to replace old generators and to bring in new supply. So what can we say about the market signals we are seeing, such as negative pricing? Clearly, this indicates oversupply. The market operator's automatic generation controller, basically the, the software logic solver that tells each generator when and how much to generate, it sees daytime demand very low because of the massive amount of rooftop solar and sees lots of generation available, much of it large-scale wind and solar, plus lots of unused, low-cost baseload capacity. As a result, daytime demand can be met at negative prices. Then the sunlight wanes, as it does, and all that rooftop solar generation retreats. A bit like Tim Flannery in the rain, you know it's true. But the evening demand is increasing, creating what looks like a ramp up in demand, which is mostly just a big chunk of the supply fading away. This evening ramp rate is increasing in proportion to the growth of rooftop solar, and can only be provided by coal, gas and hydro, and diesel in South Australia, but mainly coal. Wind typically plays very little role during periods of peak demand, and cannot produce more power on request. 
the increased ramping, reduced market share and increased scarcity of coal-fired power is creating high price periods within hours of negative price periods. So we have rooftop solar and large-scale wind and solar creating negative prices in the day, while reliable generation is delegated to the evenings, filling in the gaps between wind and solar and ramping up in the afternoons. Here's analyst and commentator Doomberg on the Decouple podcast explaining the parallels in the European system. Introduction of massive amounts of intermittent sources of power into the European electricity grid has caused significant damage to that grid. Um, but concurrent with that has been um, a, a reluctance to produce their own fossil fuels and an over-reliance on cheap, steady, readily available pipeline source natural gas from Russia. And then third, the attack on nuclear power. Um, so if you're going to introduce intermittency while simultaneously attacking baseload, while simultaneously um, outsourcing the drilling and, and processing and production of your fossil fuels, you leave yourself extraordinarily vulnerable. The effect of all this on retailers like AGL is when they've been forced into purchasing fixed price contracts for the electrical output and renewable energy certificates from wind and solar generators due to government policy. I mean, the board and the CEO could only avoid this by basically paying a fine, a penalty. If this fixed price was higher than the wholesale price, AGL was effectively forced into paying more for wholesale electricity than it otherwise would have been. That is, as a, as a wholesale price has dropped through the late 2020s, AGL was still locked into their fixed price contracts. And for years, this was how it played out until last year in 2021, when AGL infamously wrote off $1.9 billion in wind power contracts with a direct impact on AGL's share price. This is the renewable subsidy, and AGL's renewable power costs are recovered directly from their customers' bills. Uh, I believe that was somewhat offset by an $800 million tax refund for their losses, but anyway, if you were cynical, you'd call that a subsidy too. As noted by industry analyst Paul McArdle on his What Clarity website at the time, we could perhaps infer from the AGL statement above that the higher prices, around $80 to $90 per large-scale generation certificate, were more like the ones baked into the commitments of 10 years ago. Hmm. And? One of the reasons why average spot prices have fallen so much is because of the increased incidence of negative prices that the market has been encountering, with incidences in 2020 a step further up on 2019 and so on. Well, is that good? No. This is divorce of market participants from market controls. During the day, the market is desperately signaling too much supply. This is the negative prices. Think about it. Would you build a solar power station when the daytime wholesale price is negative most of the time? Also, would you buy a fixed price contract for electricity during the day when you could get paid to take it from the spot market? Clearly no. But in both cases, enter the government. Federal and state governments, local councils and universities are among the highest purchasers of fixed price contracts for wind and solar, playing a huge role in underwriting these projects. And this is stupidity on an interstellar level. The market is distorted and what market signals are present are being ignored as well. But do we get politicians and bureaucrats intervening to remove market distortions and return some sanity to one of our most important systems? You know, the one that apart from clean water underpins our way of life and the normal functioning of our society? No, that would be too sensible. We are getting more subsidies, more market distortions, and inevitably, nationalisation. As Doomberg says, anti-logic is the norm in Western political systems.
I mean, is, is there any role for, and again, I'm, uh, this is not an area I'm super familiar with, but would there be any role for the government mandating that those profits are, are spent in terms of reinvestment rather than paying out you know, dividends to shareholders, for instance? I'm just trying to think. Uh, any go, government go ahead, interference Vincent. is going to be bearish for incremental future investment. Um, mm-hmm. Whose property is it? Whose property is it? I'm, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of yeah. you know war, wartime rationing um, and uh, you know, some of the measures taken, say in World War II, for for the British Isles to re- sure. re- resist uh, you know fascist takeover. I mean, would you argue that it's purely the market that should um, steward those well, scarce resources and make do, those decisions? Or you can't do wartime rationing without wartime sacrifice, and by right, right. by by by. By issuing these giant stimulus packages, they are trying to have their cake and eat it too, which is there shall mm. be no sacrifice, but we will impose um, um, central planning rationing upon otherwise capitalistic productive industries. Mm-hmm. We all know how that goes. Like the, the, the history is undefeated in this regard. Mm. Um, and so it is the worst, again, the anti-logic, um, your Western, the current slate of Western leaders, um, with the possible exclusion of the newest of them, Liz Truss. Um, can be counted upon to to make the worst possible decision at every opportunity until a, a sufficient amount of pain is inflicted upon their society. That regime change, hopefully peacefully, but you know perhaps uh, not so peacefully, uh, occurs. Uh, and we're beginning to see the signs of a rightward tilt, which we've been warning about, mm-hmm. which European uh, the European elite ought to fear um, in Sweden with the recent election, with Liz Truss's confrontation with reality and. And uh, with Italy as well, keep a close eye on Italy. You know, the far right, quote unquote, far right parties seem poised to make massive gains. Much of Australia's electricity sector is already state owned. We have Queensland with seven out of eight coal-fired power stations state owned, plus some gas, all the hydro, all the transmission and distribution network companies, plus most of the wind and solar power purchase agreements and a monopoly regional retailer. We have Tasmania with 100% state owned generation, transmission and distribution. We have Snowy Hydro with its obvious hydro assets, but also gas peakers and wind solar power purchase agreements. And we have New South Wales with a state owning half the distribution network, plus the occasional nationalisation of the coal fuel supply. Who owns the rest? According to the AERs, the Australian Energy Regulators 2022 State of the Energy Market Report, in November 2015, the New South Wales government leased its transmission network, Transgrid, to private interests. It then leased 50.4% of two distribution networks, Ausgrid and Endeavour Energy, to private interests. The predominantly rural essential energy network remains government owned and operated. Ownership of the privatised networks in New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia is concentrated among relatively few entities. These entities include Hong Kong's Chung Kong Infrastructure Holdings and Power Assets Holdings, Singapore Power International and State Grid Corporation of China. Fund managers such as Spark Infrastructure and Hastings also have substantial equity in the sector. Significant ownership links exist across the electricity and gas network sectors. Electricity networks in Queensland, Tasmania, the Northern Territory and Western Australia remain wholly government-owned. Now, with AGL's activist shareholders trying to close its coal generators early and Origin planning the early closure of Araring in New South Wales, there is more chance of a panicked energy minister buying generators than them being closed down and replaced with wind and solar. I believe this is exactly the situation that will occur in New South Wales in 2024. Neither flavour of government... Labor or Liberal, can afford to allow that much dispatchable generation to disappear and then be forced into humiliating electricity rationing. Or perhaps they can. Minister Keane seems to be using social media to increase his name recognition, a similar tactic used in the, in the United States by ineffective politicians to avoid talking about his policies. Uh, so this is from Ivor. G'day, Ivor. 
Get a real job. My toilets need to be licked clean. Come on down. Thanks, Ivan. Just to let you know that you are a low life grub, not worth pissing on if you're on fire. <laughs> Thanks for that character assessment, Graham. <laughs> okay. Mike, please die. <laughs> you sniveling weasel. <laughs> You're charming. <laughs> okay. If I have to. Apologies for that. Somebody with possibly more insights into the energy sector than Matt Keane, who, as discussed on a previous podcast, explained that his policies are based on a trip to Germany. And look how that turned out. Uh, someone with more insights than Matt Keane is Jeff Dimery, CEO of Alinta Energy, an electricity generator and retailer in Australia and New Zealand. Here's Jeff Dimery on the Energy Unplugged podcast, talking about replacing capacity before it is retired. I think yeah. the caution for me here is if I look at what's going on in Europe where, you know, in the UK, they're falling back onto nuclear, um, you know, in France, they're doing that as well. In Germany, they're talking about restarting some coal-fired power stations. Um, I guess what I'm saying is that we really need to make sure that as we exit assets, we do so when we put a solid foundation around the future supply um, and, and not take the risk um, that ultimately we're seeing play out in Europe where you exit assets too early before that supporting infrastructure exists. That's it for this week, but I'll leave you with Double Bay Jesus, MCB himself, interviewed on the Renew Economy podcast where he was asked if the solar panels to be used on the proposed Sun Cable project will be manufactured here in Australia. Take it away, Mike. I had to explain that we're building more panels in the Northern Territory than you would need to replace the two large coal generators in AGL. Um, <laughs> that blew a few people's minds. And are you going to be building that in, um, in Australia, those, the, the actual modules? Uh, you mean they're going to be sitting in Northern Territory? Mm -hmm. Or the, the factory uh, manufacturing of the panels themselves? Yes. Oh, that's, that's a much longer answer. Um, that's a complicated <laughs> question, potentially. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a week. In the meantime, if you like the podcast, hit the like button, subscribe, tell your friends.